It's John. <laughs> How about you, Matt? It's Matt. I hated the piano in Game of Thrones. It's Kelly. Ramin is just going to get influenced from all... Didn't he do the music for Westworld? Like, just all of that piano. It's Holly. I hope whoever the composer is, they use a piano a lot in the music. (laughs) (laughs) Get him. Wonderful panelists. Spoiler alert. These podcasts are going to be intermingling book and show material. So... If using one or the other offends you in some way, we apologize. But this is the only way we can talk about this stuff. You've been warned. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to Before the Dragon. Your 322nd favorite podcast covering A Song of Ice and Fire and the Game of Thrones prequel franchise on HBO... Out of 50 active podcasts covering the same. Welcome to Before the Dragon. I'm your Song of Ice and Fire siren from the West, Kelly. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kelly Underfoot. And I'm Holly, your Song of Ice and Fire siren from the South. You can find me on Twitter at Hunt Pants. It's weird. As we continue our Seeds of Rebellion series, this time we're covering Rhaegar Targaryen. Plus, we have a very special returning guest joining us today. He's our titan of A Song of Ice and Fire from the North. It's John. Hi, everybody. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at J underscore McGonagall, and I'm glad to be back. Um, hey, it feels like we're missing something. Does it feel like we're missing something to you guys? No, not really. Nothing essential. Yeah, I think we covered everything. Everything of importance, anyway. Uh, Hey! Wait a minute, John. Did you mean we're missing our quadruple M? Quadruple M. Mediocre moderator Matt Murdick? Oh, that guy. I know, right? You guys, you need me. You need me to tell the listeners all the boring stuff. Like, you can find all back episodes of my podcast at the website, mattsaudioblog.com. You can find app links there. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Also, download and then go to another app and download again and then delete those downloads and then download again. Uh, you can send tweets to at Before the Dragon Pod on Twitter, and you can send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, or you can call 314-269-0421. Let's get going with our look at Rhaegar Targaryen. All right, just promise me there are no Viserys lines in here for you, Matt. Uh, but Or at least give the lines to John. Don't do that bad Harry Lloyd again, please. Come on, I gotta redeem myself. Oh, uh, um... Maybe we can fix it in the mix. <laughs> you know, speaking of redeeming yourself, there will be zero Rockstar Rhaegar references this time, my dude. Oh, okay. Also, folks, just so you know that I wrote all of this, including the stuff you just heard. So <laughs> if you like it, then they get all the credit. And if you don't, then I get all the blame. So don't blame anybody except me, but give praise to everybody except me. Let's go. In the year 283 AC, meaning after conquest for the uninitiated, a battle took place at the Trident River with two of the principals facing off against one another in the war known as Robert's Rebellion, or by some as the War of the Usurper. The two key players, of course, were Robert Baratheon and the focus of our podcast today, Rhaegar Targaryen. 
This battle was where the story of Rhaegar Targaryen ended, but his role and how the rebellion started would carry out through the series as we know well in Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and in the HBO television series Game of Thrones. What we know and what we can piece together about Rhaegar helps to shed light on the cause and result of the war, a war story that may potentially be made into a new television prequel series for HBO. Once again, we will be looking at both the book and show material in order to understand Rhaegar in a way that he might potentially become known to us in a new prequel series. Because we are looking through the lens of being a potential television show, we must, at least for now, accept events in HBO's Game of Thrones as canon to be used for the new series. And we must likewise understand the source material from Martin so as to see a possible path for a new set of showrunners to follow as a guideline. In a previous podcast, we explored Lyanna Stark and have already explored the love shared between Rhaegar and Lyanna to a certain extent. So we will re-examine some of that as it is crucial to the unfolding of events that spawn this war. There are other points about Rhaegar prior to the events at the Great Tourney of Harrenhal that need to be explored as well. These are the topics that might help to point to Rhaegar's motivations in addition to that love and how those motivations might have also spawned the events that led to war. By the numbers, Rhaegar was the firstborn son of the Mad King, Ares II, and was given the title Prince of Dragonstone, a title traditionally given to the primary heirs of the Iron Throne. Rhaegar was born in the year 259 AC and died at the Battle of the Trident in the year 283 AC. He is mentioned by name 177 times in Martin's books, and while appearing in only one episode of the television show, he was mentioned or referred to in at least one episode per season of the show, with the exception of season two. As we have stated before, to fully understand Rhaegar in relation to the events which unfolded to become a war, we will need to look back further than merely his crossing with Lyanna. However, let's start more basically by merely taking a look at his appearance. Through various descriptions from Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, Rhaegar can collectively be described as being, quote, beautiful. His eyes were described as being a deep purple or indigo, and his hair described as silver blonde, not unlike that of his younger siblings Viserys and Daenerys. While the casting of Rhaegar for the TV series may have met scrutiny from some here, Matt, Matt. <laughs> Littlefinger also describes him as handsome with silver hair when speaking about the tourney to Sansa in season five, the episode four, Sons of the Harpy. Whichever source appeals to you the most, it seems that there is a general consensus that Rhaegar could be considered to have a physical appeal to most people happening to cast their eyes upon him. But Rhaegar Targaryen was much more than just a pretty face. The wheels of thought and emotion seemed to have turned continuously underneath, and despite what some of the realm may have thought of him thanks to Robert's writing of his history post-rebellion, it appears that most who knew and loved Rhaegar described him as caring and honorable. And his life story may also be considered tragic, in a way, by some, starting from the very time of his birth. Born at Summerhall shortly before a great fire there, the blessing of his birth would forever be coupled with a horrific tragedy. Little is known about that time in Summerhall, at least in the written histories of A Song of Ice and Fire. But Westerosi historian Yandel, in Elio and Linda's publication The World of Ice and Fire, relays some of what we know in the section covering the Targaryen kings... The last years of Aegon's reign were consumed by a search for ancient lore. About the dragon breeding of Valyria, it was said that Aegon commissioned journeys to places as far away as a shy by the shadow, 
with hopes of finding texts and knowledge that had not been preserved in Westeros. What became of the dream of dragons was a grievous tragedy, born in a moment of joy. In the fateful year of 259 AC, the king summoned many of those closest to him to Summerhall, his favorite castle, there to celebrate the impending birth of his first great-grandchild, a boy later named Rhaegar, to his grandson, Eris, and granddaughter, Rhaella, the children of Prince Jaehaerys. It is unfortunate that the tragedy that transpired at Summerhall left very few witnesses alive, and those who survived would not speak of it. A tantalizing page of Gildane's history, surely one of the last written before his own death, hints at much, but the ink that was spilled over it in some mishap blotted out too much. The blood of the dragon gathered in one... Seven eggs to honor the seven gods, though the king's own septon had warned. Pyromancers, wildfire, flames grow out of control, towering, burnt so hot that died but for the valor of the Lord Command. Oh, oh, seven hells that damp ink. Oh, well, I guess that's not getting finished. Kind of like Winds of Winter. (laughs) There was also much discussion about Rhaegar and Martin's The Storm of Swords, where in Danny's first chapter, we learned that he was said to have been uninterested in the play of other children as a boy and bookish to a fault. Other things that we have learned about his young life, according to various passages from Martin's A Storm of Swords, chapters Danny's 1 and 4, include that he was an intelligent young man who excelled in anything he put his mind to. That included being considered a great knight and a skilled musician. In fact, some had said that he loved his silver-stringed harp as much or more than he did his lance. In the television show, we get similar accounts from Barristan Salmi to Daenerys Targaryen, Rhaegar's younger sister, who never knew him. This is from Season 5, Episode 4, Sons of the Harpy. I was thinking about all the times your brother made me go with him, down from the Red Keep into the streets of King's Landing. Why? He liked to walk among the people. He liked to sing to them. He sang to them? Yes. So? Rhaegar would pick a spot on the hook or the streets of seeds, and then he'd sing just like all the other minstrels. And what did you do? I made sure no one killed him, and I collected the money. He liked to see how much he could make. He was good? He was very good. Viserys never told you? He told me Rhaegar was good at killing people. Rhaegar never liked killing. He loved singing. And what did you do with the money? Well, one time he gave it to the next minstrel down the street. One time he gave it to an orphanage in Flea Bottom. One time, we got horribly drunk. This scene, and others like it prior to the season 7 finale reveal, were the catalyst to enable television viewers to begin to question some of the motivations behind the causes of Robert's rebellion, as historically told from a Baratheon point of view. Here, Rhaegar seems generous and talented, peaceful and peace-loving, not mad or cruel as the Baratheons and some Starks have made him out to be. We do know that he was a gifted warrior as well, according to accounts we've cited already. However, if Rhaegar didn't like killing, what happened that made this bookish boy turn his thoughts toward the arts of war in the first place? 
In Daenerys 1 of Martin's A Storm of Swords, we get a possible tipping point in time where Rhaegar's excellence in the art of war may have actually been inspired by those bookish ways. This conversation between Daenerys and Artson Whitebeard, better known to us as Sir Barristan Selmy, is from that Storm of Swords chapter by Martin, Daenerys 1. I know little of Rhaegar, only the tales Viserys told, and he was a little boy when our brother died. What was he truly like? Hmm. Able. That above all. Determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded. There is a tale told of him, but doubtless Sir Jorah knows it as well. I would hear it from you. As you wish. As a young boy, the Prince of Dragonstone was bookish to a fault. He was reading so early that men said Queen Rael must have swallowed some books and a candle whilst he was in her womb. Rhaegar took no interest in the play of other children. The maesters were awed by his wits, but his father knights would jest sourly that Baylor the Blessed had been born again. Until one day, Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been, only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yard as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Derry, the master at arms, and said, I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior. And he was, said Danny, delighted. What might it have been that Rhaegar found in those scrolls that changed him so? We are going to explore that in the next section, when we discuss qualities that Lyanna might have had that attracted Rhaegar to her. For now, we will focus on Rhaegar's qualities that might have some clues as to what attracted Lyanna to Rhaegar. A warrior, a singer, and to many of the realm, beautiful. All of those things about Rhaegar may or may not have been attractive to Lyanna. Still, Baelish himself speaks of Rhaegar's win at Harrenhal and calls Rhaegar handsome when conversing with Sansa in the Crypts of Winterfell and Season 5, Episode 4, Sons of the Harpy in the television show. You can imagine what it was like for me, a boy from nowhere, with nothing to his name watching these legendary men tilting at the lists. The last two writers were Barristan Selmy and Rhaegar Targaryen. When Rhaegar won, everyone cheered for their prince. I remember the girls laughing when he took off his helmet and they saw that silver hair. How handsome he was. Before we open this topic on Rhaegar's attractive qualities for discussion, let's just take a moment to focus on him more as a musician than a warrior. There are a few instances in the books where we get more clues about what kind of songs he chose, or perhaps even composed, and how effective those songs were on those who heard them. Though we think of the tragedy of Summerhall as a combination of Rhaegar's birth and a tragedy that somehow followed him through life, we are also told by Selmy, still in disguise of Arston Whitebeard, that Summerhall was a place of great inspiration for Rhaegar. This is from Daenerys IV in Martin's A Storm of Swords. He was born and grieved, my queen, and that shadow hung over him all his days. Viserys had spoken of Rhaegar's birth only once. Perhaps the tale saddened him too much. It was the shadow of Summerhall that haunted him, was it not? Yes. And yet Summerhall was the place the prince loved best. He would go there from time to time with only his harp for company. Even the Knights of King's Guard did not attend him there. He liked to sleep in the ruined hall, 
beneath the moon and stars, and whenever he came back, he would bring a song. When you heard him play his high harp with the silver strings and sing of twilights and tears and deaths of kings, you could not but feel that he was singing of himself and those he loved. We also know of the power that his songs seemed to possess. John Connington, in the chapter The Griffin Reborn from Martin's A Dance with Dragons, tells us of that power. He was so young then, and I was younger. Boys, the both of us. At the welcoming feast, the prince had taken up his silver-stringed harp and played for them. A song of love and doom, John Connington recalled. And every woman in the hall was weeping when he put down the harp. And in the TV series, in the histories and lore section for season six, Mira Reed tells the story of one of Rhaegar's songs having a similar effect on Lyanna Stark of Winterfell. That evening, there was to be a feast in Harrenhal to mark the opening of the tourney and Lyanna insisted that my father attend as he was of high birth, with as much of a right to a place on the bench as any other man. She was not easy to refuse, this wolf maid, so my father borrowed suitable clothes from Benjen and went up to the great castle. Under Heron's great roof, my father ate and drank with his fellow Northmen. A black brother beseeched the knights to join the Night's Watch, to sniggers and smiles. Prince Rhaegar sang a song so sad that it brought tears to Lyanna's eyes, but when Benjen teased her for it, she poured wine over his head. Throughout this presentation so far, we've heard Rhaegar described as able, determined, deliberate, dutiful, and we've heard of his talents for music and knighthood. We've heard that tragedy was a frame into which he was born, and as we have also learned, tragedy was something he also seemed to have carried with him throughout his life. Are these some of the qualities that might have drawn Lyanna Stark to be attracted to him? During these discussions, we will also sometimes be referencing some well-known theories regarding Rhaegar and Lyanna that our writer couldn't seem to find a way to organize properly into the presentation. Matthew! <laughs> we will also once again ask that someone on this panel in particular refrain from using rockstar references. Matthew! <laughs> okay, and there it is. Uh, okay, if I can't do that, maybe I should just start with you, Kelly and ask, what are the questions regarding Rhaegar's attractive qualities to Liana? I know that you and I have already talked about this in the prior Liana podcast, but uh, what about Rhaegar would make him attractive to Liana? And we discussed some of this. Maybe we should put it out here right off the bat. Um, there is a theory, of course, about the feather bed, which you brought up in the last podcast, indicating that maybe Rhaegar discovered that Lyanna Stark, and this is only if you believe that Lyanna Stark was the knight of the Laughing Tree that came to Hallam Reed's aid. Well, she came to Hallam Reed's aid, but she may have also participated in the tourney. And we know that Ares actually sent Rhaegar to find whoever the knight of the Laughing Tree was. And I suppose as the theory goes, he discovered who it was. And this whole falling bed, uh, feather bed song that's in the books maybe about uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna rather than, I know a lot of people kind of associate it more with Arya in the book simply because it was a song that was sung in her chapter. But it seems to make more sense to me to be more about Lyanna and Rhaegar. I'll put it to you in the form of a question. Could Lyanna have become even more attracted to Rhaegar uh, despite any song or his good looks or anything like that, but simply because she found him to be 
someone who was just, someone who wasn't going to uh, take her out for being the Knight of the Laughing Tree. That's a good point. I didn't, yeah, we kind of talked a lot about like what was attractive back and forth between the two of them in the previous one. And so I think, yeah, looking at it more from, Lyanna had heard all of this, like she was aware of Rhaegar as an idea, you know, as a prince and his his reputation. So meeting him in person, what would have changed anything? Because clearly something happened here, at least the minimum, like their their interaction with this, their, their first meeting here. What could that have changed in her opinion of him that led to what we know happens later? And yeah, me- maybe meeting him as a person and the secret that they shared, if this is what happened, that at the very least that their interaction was that he did find her and kept her secret and didn't turn her over and defied the will of his father, of the king, in the name of honor or in the name of justice, knightly traits yeah like that that could probably be something that made him stand out to her as a person and turned this idea of this targaryen prince into somebody she was attracted to on a personal level and that does change i think my perspective of like her feelings at least thinking of it that in that way and yeah the featherbeds uh, story if you didn't hear in the last one i, I entirely got that from lady gwen in on uh, radio westeros she did a really good way of breaking that down and it's it's not so much that that song you know it's more of like a martin hint than it is actually like a in universe hint it's more of the way he placed it in the story and t- as being sung to aria and aria sometimes being an avatar for liana and then the content of that song being it kind of implying that Rhaegar and Lyanna story. So yeah, I like the idea that yeah, his his honor and his his personal protection of her was something that made him a, a human she could be attracted to, as opposed to this grand idea of a prince who probably has these characteristics that are generally attractive: a singer, a fighter. He can do it all, ladies. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for putting it in a better context because I'm always terrible at that. Holly, put it in an even greater context. Tell us uh, your feelings about why Lyanna might be attracted to Rhaegar at all. There's also examples in the book of, you know, Stockholm Syndrome with, with Daenerys. So uh, is it possible that that could be the case or is it? does it simply seem to you like uh they ran off more so than anybody was abducted yeah i'm gonna go with the latter on that and that's mostly informed by the show and how they played it out but i do think it's possible that she was attracted to him and uh he's just not like the other princes i don't know that there's a lot of Jon snow kind of characteristics that i think that rhaegar has or you know maybe Jon snow inherited it kind of seems brooding and uh quiet and mysterious and seems like those are qualities that ladies just kind of generally find attractive in any guy the mystery and he doesn't seem too interested in ruling for the sake of being a ruler but being just and doing the right thing like kelly says John, before I, I, I do want to get around to your general thoughts, and by the way, it's so great to have you back. I, I know I wrote that silly intro to where we didn't actually get a chance to talk, but I'm so happy to have you back. Uh, I'm going to dig a hole real deep, and then I'm going to expect you to climb out of it um, and throw me down in it after you're done, I'm sure. Okay. But in the Liana podcast, we looked at the fact that Liana was well aware of Robert's uh bastard in the veil, Maya Stone. Uh, She had even expressed that she was aware of that to Ned uh, in a quote from Game of Thrones, the book. But Rhaegar 
if he leaves Elia for Liana, does he too not become some kind of deadbeat dad the same way that Robert does? Uh, is it one of those things? See, here's the hole. Uh, is it one of those things where uh, it didn't matter to her as far as Rhaegar went? as opposed to where it would as far as Robert went? I, I love this point that you bring up here, Matt, because I think this is a little bit more interesting. This is more the rationalization that she comes to to kind of like say, yeah, this is a guy for me. And I have a feeling they probably was a lot of conversations off screen, off page, however you want to describe it, where I think the factors that Holly and Kelly brought up were probably contributing factors that have those conversations. But I think he was very, very much into his whole prophecy. And I think he was rather convincing and probably made it seem okay. Even though to your point, like it's the thing that she may have found unattractive with Robert. She kind of, I guess, permitted with Rhaegar. But the only way I can think of it is that he's just very, very convincing. I mean, I could see even, and I don't, it's been, excuse me for any of my lapses of knowledge, it's been a while since I've been thinking about Game of Thrones, but I could have swore I remember hearing some things that Elia at some point said it was okay because she could no longer um, give birth after their first two children. And again, I know, especially what it seems like the, the whole polyamorous thing keeps coming up too, and like, I guess... What is it? Oh, just open marriage is it seems like it's becoming more more permitted today in, in our social norms. So, I mean, I think there's probably some sort of factor in there that could have played. But to your point, it, it does kind of I don't know. It doesn't seem to jive with the stark nature of that of that family and what they look look to. So I, I think it's one of those complicated human factors that we liken in Martin's books and stories is that we're also multifaceted in real life and so are his characters they're not just like the starks are always so it's like i think there are some even though they are pretty consistent there are some things where i think they allow some variance so i don't know if i dug you out of the hole that you dug or if i just dug a little bit deeper but (laughs) (laughs) to contribute to this hole uh, there's is should there be a distinction made between robert and uh well not that he even neglected his bastard daughter but she was a bastard versus Rhaegar's legitimate children and i don't want to think liana really cares mm. about that but it seems like there may be some judgment there she is from a, a noble family so maybe the distinction does matter to her to play the role of susan actually here i want to fill in the gaps cuz john you had good points about elia but it it's not so much that her viewpoint or opinions are ever, nobody really thinks of them directly in the books, but what is noted of her is how close she was with Oberyn and how we can look to that as an opinion base for what she might have thought of open relationships. So the fact that she was so fond and and close with Oberyn and Oberyn obviously through his whole life has had multiple partners and is okay with his partner having multiple partners and both genders and everything like is very open and accepted in Dorne and in Sunspear, in in their culture, (laughs) in the Dornish culture. So that's where the opinion that she probably would have not been too, you know, wouldn't have found it too problematic that they had outside relationships comes from. But the idea that the show kind of proved and or that the theory that's in the 
going to happen in the books that Rhaegar and Leon ended up getting married and that in the show it very clearly stated that, that Elia and Rhaegar annulled their marriage is something that would come into play in terms of the legitimacy of her children, the risk to their lives after that. Like there's a lot more concern that I would say made Liana's role more highly responsible and, and more negatively impacting Elia than if in the book goes a different route where instead of annulling their marriage, they end up, he just ends up having multiple wives, mm. which Targaryens have done in the mm. past. So but as towards the kind of seeming hypocrisy that Liana shows towards kind of seeming to have a problem with Robert having outside relations or premarital relations, but then her permitting, permising Rhaegar doing the same thing, I look at it more as Liana feeling like she's going to do the same thing. And I think I mentioned this in the last one. Far, sorry for the repetitiveness, but the fact that if Robert is going to come to the marriage bed, not a... Uh, a, a silky white virgin then she shan't either <laughs> uh. Uh, it may not even be that that he was just experienced but it just may be telling that he's the kind of guy that's gonna just go for any woman whenever he can and maybe she just kind of guessed like oh is he really gonna be faithful to me in our marriage if he's already like this True. Maybe she had the intention of continuing this behavior into their marriage. Like she was very into egalitarian, you know, uh, marriages. <laughs> wow. Also, what about the the possibility that Elia, because Elia was at the tourney, we know, and it's never really said that she had much of a reaction to Rhaegar and Lyanna, at least at the Garland Lane, and then at any point really. So I wonder if she was there and gave. Liana her blessing and explained that maybe the situation that Rhaegar needs a third head to his dragon and I can't have anymore. So mm. I don't know, like she mm. kind of was okay with it at that point. My opinion is still just very wide open because there's still a lot of missing information. We really don't know anybody's side. All we have is hearsay and it's easy to make assumptions, good or bad, about these two and the destruction that came in the wake of it, but we, we still don't really know the whole story, which I know is why we're here trying to decide it. But yeah, I, I, I just can't wait to find out how this all began. I went into this a little bit before, and I'm curious as to Holly and John's, if you if you have an opinion about how the show would do it that would make you content with how they play it out on screen or how George plays it out on the page. Like what about their decision-making or behavior would be a good enough explanation to you for how this played out because it does have dire consequences. So like, what would you like to see or what would you like to see that was good? Like it, it was like, Oh, I forgive these characters or, or I understand these characters or it went really badly. And you're like, wow, I really like Liliana. Now I hate her. Like, would you have strong reactions one way or the other? If you have an opinion, you don't have to. <laughs> I guess for me, it's a lot of what you were talking about. If they, if there was like just op complete open lines of communication between Rhaegar, Liana, Rhaegar, and Elia, Elia and Liana, all three of them together, just talking it out. I don't know. I guess consent from all parties would make me feel a little bit better. And they not necessarily would have guessed that Robert would have gone to war, or that Ares would have burned Rickard and Brandon and all of those events that happened. It's an interesting question. I, I guess I'm pretty agnostic to what it is, but I think I'm kind of with Holly. If, as long as as long as people were consenting to everything, I think I'd feel at least okay. I think it's because it's happened in the past year, you know what happens afterwards. I'm, I guess I'm less concerned with all the nitty gritty details. I think the aftermath is by far more interesting. 
Ah, okay. So it, that's a thing. Do they have to fill in some of this information or is there a way to dance around it there too? I don't think you have to fill in any of the information. I think sometimes, even though we want to know, we don't necessarily need to know. We don't always get all the context to everything and everything in life. I mean, look at history, just what we deal with. We don't know all the details that led up to cause the domino effect of every single little thing. We do our best to make sense of it, but often we don't know. So I think that's kind of part it. And some people might call that cheap storytelling. I, I To me, it kind of rings authentic. Mm, I agree. Well, I resent that remark, but I, nonetheless, let's as a completionist, <laughs> but let's move on to our part two. As we know, according to the television show, Rhaegar left his wife, Princess Elia Martell, and his two children to pursue Lyanna and ultimately have a third child, who we know as Jon Snow. The books tell a similar story up to a certain point, leaving off where Martin has yet to conclude his story. A question that might remain for both show only and book readers alike is, why Liana? For that matter, we might even ask, why anyone? And we touched on some of that in our discussion, but we can put forth to you some fairly suggestive evidence, and we will do our own share of speculating and theorizing during this section as well. But we also want you, the listeners, to ponder these why questions for yourselves as we present our information. This part of our presentation relies even more heavily on book sources than television sources, as much about Rhaegar that is known from the books was not brought in to the television show. We can only assume that a potential Robert's Rebellion series will use book information as at least a guideline for the show, and we know that some information about Rhaegar regarding Elia is now considered part of the television show canon. So let's begin there. We know that in the books and in the TV series, Rhaegar did marry Elia Martell of Dorne, and together they had two children. Prince Oberyn Martell gives his feelings on the matter in Season 4 Histories and Lore section in the feature entitled Robert's Rebellion. Perhaps this is what drew Rhaegar Targaryen to us. His royal parents had not produced a sister to wed, so we had to look elsewhere for a princess. And there was only one in Westeros. Elia of House Martell my sister. She was not the most beautiful woman in the world, or even in Dorne, but rare. For a woman from our land, her flower came with no thorns. She was kind and clever and with a gentle heart. I loved her, I feared for her. For years I fended off lesser men from her, but when Rhaegar came, even I failed. He was beautiful, and the crown prince of the Seven Kingdoms and our mother had worked so hard to secure the match. How could Elia not accept him? They were wed. And he took from her her home, from those who loved her and who would die for her, and locked her in his red keep. Above his thigh of a city, surrounded by false friends, she bore him a daughter and a son, though each almost cost her her life. Elia loved Rhaegar, she obeyed him, and he chose to steal away Lyanna Stark, a pale northern girl whose veins ran with ice like all her people. Now, to this host, there are a couple of key phrases in this show historical monologue from the Red Viper. One is that Oberyn tells us that Elia was not considered the most physically beautiful woman, even though she appears to be considered fairly beautiful in all other ways. Could this be a reason for Rhaegar abandoning her? Was he simply overwhelmed by Lyanna's wild beauty, as described in our previous podcast episodes discussing the She-Wolf? 
that could be discussed. But this host believes that there is a second key phrase here to note. Oberyn tells us that Elia almost lost her life giving birth to her and Rhaegar's two children. It is here that two concepts, quite commonly known to book readers and possibly known to show viewers, come into play. The concepts are one, the prince that was promised, and two, the dragon has three heads. First, let's review what the concept of the prince that was promised is for both the initiated and non-initiated. This is a prophecy given by a woods witch to the Targaryen prince, who would become King Jaehaerys II, Rhaegar's grandfather. The prophecy essentially told Jaehaerys that from the line of his son and daughter, Aerys and Rhaella, the prince that was promised would be born. Yandel tells of Jaehaerys making moves to put this prophecy into action in Elio and Linda's The World of Ice and Fire, The Targaryen King's Aegon V. Jaehaerys and Shara would have two children, Aerys and Rhaella. On the word of Jenny of Old Stones, Woods Witch, Prince Jaehaerys determined to wed Aerys to Rhaella, or so the accounts from his court tell us. King Aegon washed his hands of it in frustration, letting the prince have his way. Just in case someone is having trouble keeping track of all these names, remember that Aerys mentioned in the prior quote is indeed Aerys that we know as the Mad King. Nothing is specifically confirmed as to what will come from the line of Aerys and Rayla in that particular passage, but the intention of a prince that was promised coming from the line of that union is confirmed, as Daenerys and Barristan Selmy speak in Martin's A Dance with Dragons in the chapter Daenerys 4. You saw my brother Rhaegar wed. Tell me, did he wed for love or duty? Princess Aelia was a good woman, your grace. She was kind and clever, with a gentle heart and a sweet wit. I know the prince was very fond of her. Fond, thought Danny. The word spoke volumes. I could become fond of his Darzol Lorak in time, perhaps. I saw your father and your mother wed as well. Forgive me, but there was no fondness there, and the realm paid dearly for that, my queen. Why did they wed if they did not love each other? Your grandsire commanded it. A woods witch had told him that the prince that was promised would be born of their line. A woods witch? Danny was astonished. She came to court with Jenny of Oldstones, a stunted thing, grotesque to look upon, dwarf, most people said, though dear to Lady Jenny, who always claimed that she was one of the children of the forest. We've heard from Melisandre in the television show, and even more specifically in the books, in regards to a savior-type figure who would defeat the agents of death from the north that she often called Azor High Reborn. We also must note in the television show that sometimes the names Azor High Reborn and the prince that was promised have been used interchangeably. While the television show did give us a conclusion to the story of the White Walkers, we still await to see how those events will play out in the books, armed with more information and more possibility than the television show provided in the end. That information could be used to help give us additional motivations for Rhaegar's actions at Harrenhal and beyond if we do indeed get a Robert's Rebellion series. One thing that is consistent within the books and the show is that the prince that was promised, or Azor High Reborn if you prefer, will come into the world under certain circumstances. Melisandre tells us in the Davos 3 chapter of Martin's A Storm of Swords that, quote, When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor High shall be born again amidst smoke and salt. 
As it turns out, Stannis wasn't the only character to fall under that criteria, and we can see in retrospect that the ceremony performed on Dragonstone for the Middle Baratheon was likely a forcing of the issue by Melisandre herself, due to the comet in the sky, in both show and books. If that is the case, then who were other possible suspects? Maester Aemon gives his thoughts to book readers in Samwell Four of Martin's A Feast for Crows. On Bravos, it seemed possible that Aemon might recover. Zondo's talk of dragons had almost seemed to restore the old man to himself. That night he ate every bite Sam put before him. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall the day of his birth. The salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy. For a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain a bleeding star had to be a comet. What fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. The air crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Both saw the truth of that, but now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one born amidst salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. So we can now see that Aemon at one time thought that Rhaegar might be this prince that was promised. And according to Aemon, Rhaegar thought this for a while as well. Did Rhaegar get the notion for himself from the scroll he read as a bookish child, or possibly through some other means? Regardless of how Rhaegar came to this knowledge of the prophecy, at some point he seems to have decided that he must learn the ways of war, as recounted earlier in this presentation. Notice that Aemon also associates this prince that was promised prophecy with Rhaegar's son, and with Daenerys, and there is also mentions of dragons. The Targaryen line is of course naturally known as the line of the dragon. That points to another phrase about dragons that, while the words were not necessarily often used in the show, are found all over in the books, and also exhibited in the Targaryen banners. A three-headed dragon. The phrase, the dragon has three heads, is used throughout the books, and even used by Aemon in the same Samwell Four chapter in Martin's A Feast for Crows that we quoted just a moment ago. He asked Sam to read for him from a book by Septon Barth, whose writings had been burned during the reign of Balor the Blessed. Once he woke up weeping. The dragon has three heads, he wailed, but I am too old and frail to be one of them. I should be with her, showing her the way, but my body has betrayed me. This seems to indicate that this figurative dragon with three heads consists of multiple people. In the books, in Daenerys, one of Martin's A Storm of Swords, Sir Jorah goes a step further, after making unwanted advances on his queen. He concludes that three heads not only mean people, but three dragon riders. Your grace, he conceded, the dragon has three heads, remember? You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meaning. Beleriand, Maraxis, and Vega. Ridden by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya. 
the three-headed dragon of House Targaryen. Three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny, but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Vicinia were Aegon's wives as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will ever be half so true to you as me. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe we didn't need to hear that last part from old friend zone, Sir Jorah. But it does point to a debate regarding blood relatives versus relatives by marriage. In Rhaegar's case, we think we know him to have decided that blood relatives would be the preferred choice. A reference to the idea of three heads of the dragon can also be found in one of the visions that Daenerys witnessed in Karth while trying to get her dragons back from the warlocks. Let's examine that Daenerys 4 chapter in Martin's Clash of Kings. We should also note this. Unlike in the television show, one of Daenerys' visions in the House of the Undying featured Rhaegar, Elia, and their newborn son. It was in that vision, which many book readers considered to be authentic, much like the green seeing to Jojen or Bran, that we learn of Rhaegar's intentions of establishing that his own line will consist of the, quote, three heads of the dragon. Here is that passage from Daenerys Four in Martin's Clash of Kings. Viserys was her first thought the next time she paused, but a second glance told her otherwise. The man had her brother's hair, but he was taller, and his eyes were a dark indigo rather than lilac. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn babe in a great wooden bed. What better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? The woman asked. He has a song. He is the prince that was promised, and he is the song of ice and fire. He looked up when he said it, and his eyes met Danny's, and it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said, though whether he was speaking to her or the woman in the bed, she could not say. The dragon has three heads. He went to the window seat, picked up a harp, and ran his fingers lightly over the silvery strings. Sweet sadness filled the room as man and wife and babe faded into the morning mist, only the music lingering behind to speed her on her way. And with that, it's time to take another break. For another discussion. Given these last accounts, is it possible that Elia's troubles with childbirth was yet another reason that Rhaegar had at his disposal in order to create a third heir so as to fulfill his figurative three heads of the dragon? Let us also consider that in the last episode exploring Lyanna Stark, Rhaegar most likely would have seen Lyanna as strong, beautiful, and likely fit to produce heirs. It's not the intention of this podcast to propose that Rhaegar was quite so coldly calculated as to just be looking for a baby-making machine, but could these reasons possibly be enough for Rhaegar to leave his family and ultimately risk a war? So I think that one of the things that comes to me in regards to this is Rhaegar. It's just weird to me because there are, as we discussed in the earlier discussion, uh, there may be some kind of open lines of communication that we are unaware of or whatever. Um, but it still seems cold to me just to say, oh, Elia, you can't produce any more heirs. Hey, let me go make some more heirs. Would El- I mean, would Elia agree to that? Was Rhaegar perhaps a little unstable to be so driven to be considering this his whole life? Uh, let's start with you, Holly. 
to your first question, it does seem pretty normal that looking at a woman's body and how well she could produce airs is pretty common. We hear about it a lot. Catelyn is like looking at all of Walter Frey's daughters with like sizing them up for Rob. <laughs> Jane's hips is like a whole thing. It seems pretty normal. I don't think it's cold of him to do that. Mm-hmm. Let me throw in here. Thank throw you. In. All right. So Please. I do think that there's something that we need to look at in terms of, especially since this is an episode about Rhaegar, that I think will help alleviate some concern that this seems really cold. Because it isn't just about this like having an open relationship thing. Like There's two things here. He's got his obsession with prophecy, and then he's got his relationship with Elia. And I think the relationship with Elia, we can look to Rhaegar's first 17 years of life before his brother was born to kind of get an idea as to why he immediately went from, I need to have three heirs, and this was obviously your last one, so I'm looking elsewhere. You know, I think if you look at his first 17 years of life, we just talked about his mom, Rayla, and how she went through stillbirth after stillbirth, miscarriage after miscarriage, like to the point, like if you look into Rayla's kind of and in, in the Mad King Aries kind of relationship, it's awful. Mm-hmm. He he starts to like suspect that she, because she's having all these miscarriages, like at first he's comforting her, but then he starts to be suspicious that she's sleeping around or that somebody else is, you know, that she's cursed or something. And so he locks her away and has like Septa's sleeping in the bed with her every night just to prove that she's not sleeping around and then she still has these miscarriages so he kills the septas like he's just insane and this kid Rhaegar is growing up with his mom going through this so I think he probably felt bad like if he's as sensitive as he seems to be like he probably felt bad that he was putting his wife through this Mm. and if he just is a normal human and cares about somebody else's pain you know that would be his reaction would be to not force her to have another child but he still has this obsession with prophecy. So he's probably like, well, we've got to find another solution. And luckily, you know, it seems that Ares had uh, Rhaegar marry Elia because she was she has the title of princess, but it also works out. Like that might be a George R. R. Martin kind of cover for the fact that she would be open to having an open relationship or for, for Rhaegar to have a second wife mm. or to separate and have another wife. But it could be, you know, so that could be kind of hidden under the surface of the fact that she's you know, this princess title and that's why they got married or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, so going back to, I think, Rhaegar's growing up with his mom going through that in his past uh, would be informing his decision here. Like as soon as Elia was told that this is your last pregnancy, if you have another, it will kill you. That's an excellent point, Kelly. But uh, that brings us back around to the other question that I had, which I just now recalled. Uh, oh, and that right. is... This obsession with the prophecy, regardless of what, I mean, I understand uh, the, the whole idea of whether or not, you know, he, he, he's gotten all of this stuff happening to, uh, from his perspective that was wrong with his mother and his father. But uh, it seems that he's willing to do anything in regards to fulfilling this prophecy. Does that border on the whole, as you called it, an obsession, Kelly? Holly, is that a, a little bit unhealthy? Let's just put it that way. Was it an unhealthy obsession? Yes, to an extent. If, if this is Rhaegar's madness side of the coin, thankfully, it's just being prophecy obsessed and not like Ares, Mad King obsessed, or even Egg on the Fifth uh, trying to rebirth dragons in Summerhall and or Arian Brightflame, you know, like 
all of these other Targaryens who kind of lost it a little bit. Um, his madness is pretty mild, but yeah, I think he is obsessive about this prophecy and it's, it's definitely not healthy, but it could have been worse. John, sorry to have left you out on this. What, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, it's it's interesting just hearing you guys talk about it. And I guess it's for us looking on the outside in on this. Yeah, it looks like it might be a little bit off, a little bit wrong, a little bit crazy. But looking at it from his point of view, he's probably looking at his life is probably running up against a clock. He has to get this done. If he doesn't get this done, something bad will happen. So it, it can all things considered, looking at everything he's done i know all the the rebellion started from his actions but the way he saw it is is like the end of the world may happen if he doesn't so looking at it from that point of view all of the things that he's trying to do i think he's trying to do it in the kindest way he possibly can even though a lot of people are getting hurt I think it's interesting that this Woods Witch came up here because we have evidence that Melisandre has some power and she is sometimes right, but she's sometimes wrong as well. But this Woods Witch is almost always right. She has these visions. She shares them for a song, I think, in the books we meet her. And so she's very, but she's always very accurate and we have no reason to doubt her. So imagine as Rhaegar, you go to Summer Hall and you meet this Woods Witch and she tells you something as a kid. And it tells you something like, your whole life will be a tragedy. You will lead to nothing but death. But you have to do these things to avoid worse tragedy and more death. And I think some sort of like prophecy like that would stick with him. And let's say she gave him some other minor visions or stories that actually came true that led him to believe in it. And then that led into this obsession. And of course, yes, as a Targaryen, he probably had a predisposition to <laughs> like take one thing to its extreme. And that's when, you know, he, he's a bookish boy, probably trying to prove or disprove or read his way out of being a, a tragic person as a for the rest of his life or something. You know, but we did see him go from being this bookish boy to, well, something this was which said came true. Everything else she must have said is going to come true. I have to be a warrior. And then he just switched and he, you know, switched over to fulfilling, you know, these prophecy because like, let's say that that's what she told him. So every decision that he makes up to this point, like, has been, to, yes, you know, going to lead to tragedy, but it's to avoid greater tragedy. And so that kind of, I think, plays into his character as this like mournful, brooding Jon Snow type character where nothing mm. good is really around him in the world, but he has to do these not great things in order to avoid worse things. Yeah. So that's, I think, kind of a silver lining to his character. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and this conversation, even just this little part, is far from over. But because I like to put time restraints on these podcasts, we're going to take a short break here until next week when you'll get the concluding part two of this particular examination of Rhaegar Targaryen. Once again, thanks, a great thanks to very special people who contribute their time and their reading and their humor and their thoughts to all of this. Please follow at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. That's K-E-L-L-Y Underfoot on Twitter. Follow Holly at HuntPants on Twitter. It's not weird. It's just at HuntPants. And we're so glad to have him back. Please follow John at J underscore McGonagall. Now, I'm not supposed to spell that. He doesn't want me to spell it. You have to figure it out for yourself. Google it. 
is what he says to do. But at J underscore McGonagall, be the code breaker. Figure out who he is on Twitter and then follow him. As for this podcast, Before the Dragon, that's the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod on Twitter. You can send emails. Ah, You don't need to hear all of that. This guy right here is going to tell you how to get in contact with me. Thanks for listening. Back with part two next week. Tweet to the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod. Send emails to matsaudioblog at gmail.com or call 314-269-0421. Find all information and back episodes at matsaudioblog.com.